Welcome to Industry Roundtable with Roger Reiswig. I'm Roger Reiswig, Fellow and Vice President of Industry Relations at Johnson Controls. In this series, I will host leaders in the industry to explore fire and life safety issues that matter to you. Today, my guest is Russ Fleming. Russ is the retired president of the National Fire Sprinkler Association, as well as the retired managing director of the International Fire Sprinkler Association. Welcome, Russ. Well, thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, glad you could make it today. Thank you. And yeah, before we get too much into it, could you first tell our listeners a little bit about your background and those two organizations, the NFSA and the IFSA? I'd be glad to. Let's start with the organizations. The NFSA, the National Fire Sprinkler Association, uh, traces its history back to 1905, sort of the same era we'll be talking about later with regard to the NFPA. Uh, it considers itself the voice of the fire sprinkler industry because it's an umbrella organization representing all facets of the industry. If you look at its board of directors, for example, you'll see the fire sprinkler manufacturers, fire sprinkler contractors, and even suppliers on the board to direct its activities. Uh, I was hired by the NFSA as its first staff engineer back in 1975, uh, shortly after I'd received a, a master's degree in civil engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And I rose through various positions and actually uh, was president for a few years prior to my retirement. Even before I'd retired from NFSA, I served as managing director of the IFSA uh, because IFSA was created in 1999 by the NFSA and other interests. And it serves as sort of an international organization to promote fire sprinklers worldwide. It's not a typical association. And for that reason, it changed its name a few years back to the International Fire Suppression Alliance. And that's what it is. It's an alliance of manufacturers, product testing laboratories, and others that pool their resources to promote the formation of organizations that will, in various parts of the world, promote proper use and application of fire sprinklers. So uh, that organization hired a full-time managing director in 2020, just prior to the pandemic. I still serve as a part-time technical director for that organization. Well, it's really interesting, Russ, and you know, there's, there's a lot of um, history that comes into uh, the background of how these organizations, associations are created, why they were created for that matter. And um, I've been in the business for a long time, and there, you just taught me some stuff that I wasn't aware of or didn't know. Um, today, we wanted to talk a little bit about NFPA and a little bit of the history of, of that uh, organization. And you used to actually chair the NFPA Standards Council, I'm a current member of the Standards Council for NFPA, and they have the purview to overlook the 300 and some documents that NFPA has. But as we talk about these codes and these standards a little bit, I, I thought you'd be a great person to ask, where did they come from? How does this tie into the history of fire sprinklers? Uh, why did NFPA use the numbering platform that they utilize today? And some other little bits of history that I know that you have stored up there um, in your, your head of knowledge. So if we could just jump into it, Russ, what can you tell us about the history of NFPA and the numbering system? 
Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your timing because here we are in November of 2021, and it was uh, 125 years ago to the month that the NFPA was founded, November of 1896. And actually, if you go back to the founding of NFPA, things really started about a year prior to that, when there was a meeting that took place in New York City uh, with Frederick Rennell and a few insurance people. And if uh, just to explain to our listeners who Frederick Rennell is, it dates back to the foundings of uh, the industry, and actually even prior to that, with uh, the invention of the sprinkler by Henry Parmalee. He's credited with the invention of the world's first practical automatic sprinkler. He did it to protect his piano factory in New Haven, Connecticut. And, of course, inventing it is not enough. You have to get it installed to have any practical value. And that's where Frederick Grinnell came in. He had retired from the railroad industry and had bought a company called Providence Steam and Gas Company. And he was an engineer and a tinker. And uh, he was the guy who was regarded by many as the father of the fire sprinkler industry because he took Parmalee's invention and installed it in hundreds of applications uh, to get better insurance rates for building owners. So he is the guy who made things happen, and he, along the way, made improvements in the product as well. Now, I should mention, uh, Frederick Grinnell, of course, took that company and it became the Grinnell Corporation and it eventually uh, was the basis of Tyco, which is now part of uh, your company, Johnson Controls. So he's a, a well-known name in the industry. So Frederick Grinnell met with these insurance people and the reason was that everybody had their own idea about how to install automatic sprinklers. Uh, the legend has it that there were nine different installation standards in use in the Boston area alone although I've also heard that same number used with regard to the New York City area. But in any event, uh, there was no consistency, and this was not popular with the insurance industry. So in 1895, uh, a few insurance people got together with Fred Grinnell, who was regarded already as the world expert on sprinkler systems, and they decided to write a uniform set of rules. So they met later that same year, and it was... In November of uh, 1896, when more insurance people came to a meeting, and officially at that meeting, the sprinkler rules were adopted, and they thought it was such a good idea, at that same meeting, they founded the National Fire Protection Association. So the sprinkler standard, or what we now call the sprinkler standard, actually uh, predated the NFPA, but it was the first standard issued by the new organization called the NFPA. So, Russ, I thought I knew a lot of that story, but it turns out you just taught me a whole lot more. And it's very, very fascinating how that happens. So if the sprinkler standard was the first NFPA standard, you might think that it would be NFPA 1 instead of NFPA 13. So why is that? Well, actually, that's that's a question I thought about a lot as well, because I had read articles about the founding of the NFPA over the years. And I remember articles by uh, Dick Stevens, who was the vice president of engineering for NFPA when I started in the industry in 1975. 
an article by uh, Art Cody, who succeeded him as the chief engineer for NFPA, and even an article by uh, uh, others, uh, who articles by others who've written about the history of the organization. But nobody has ever gotten into the issue of the numbering system, and so this this was a question in my mind. And about 11 years ago, I was up at NFPA and had some extra time. So I decided to do some research in the archives. Uh, and uh, I found the answer. And the answer goes back to the fact that in uh, 1896, when NFPA was founded, of course, it was a very new and weak organization. Uh, and it actually was only stock insurance companies that were members of NFPA at that time. Uh, even Frederick Cornell wasn't allowed to join as a full member. He later was able to join as some type of associate member. Uh, but the same was true of John Freeman of the Factory Mutual Organization. Since they weren't a stock insurance company, they weren't allowed to join NFPA initially. But anyway, by 1900, the success of the Sprinkler Standard had uh, was uh, pretty well known. And an organization uh, tied to the insurance industry, the National Board of Fire Underwriters, uh, took notice and joined NFPA at that time and actually ad adopted all of its standards uh, because by that time, it wasn't just the sprinkler standard. There were others as well. I should mention, by the way, they weren't called standards at that time. Uh, the National Board of Fire Underwriters agreed that they would publish all of these NFPA documents. Uh, in Some of us who were around in uh, 1986 which was the 90th anniversary of NFPA, received a, a facsimile copy of that first standard uh, NFPA 13, or wasn't NFPA 13. If you look at the cover of the, of the facsimile, it says, Rules and Regulations of the National Board of Fire Underwriters for Sprinkler Equipments, Automatic and Open Systems, as recommended by the National Fire Protection Association, edition of 1896. So the National Board of Fire Underwriters, the NBFU, uh, was a, a large organization. They agreed to publish all of the NFPA recommended documents. And they were published as rules and regulations of the National Board of Fire Underwriters. And they did so until 1964. So from 1901 to 1964, it was the NBFU that was publishing all these documents. And in fact, it wasn't until 1940 that the uh, NBFU started using the word uh, standards instead of rules and regulations. And that came at the request of the NFPA because the NFPA didn't want to give the impression that uh, these documents were legally binding in any sense unless they were adopted somehow, which is, of course, uh, still the case, as you know, from your work on the Standards Council. So they are now, uh, they became standards, uh, use that term, beginning in 1940. Well, the, the numbering system actually was introduced at that same time. And the, and the reason, the way I found this, was that I came across a book about the history of the NBFU. And that was published uh, under the name, uh, I think it was called Pioneers of Progress. Uh, it was written in... Uh, the 1940s, and it talked about the success of the National Board of Fire Underwriters from its founding in 1866 to 1941. In any event, that book had an appendix, and in the appendix was their numbering system for the various standards. So let me tell you how this worked. Uh, there were different divisions that they had set up. 
And the first division was for fire extinguishing appliances. Division two was for fire extinguishing auxiliaries, such as pumps, tanks, and private fire brigades. Division three was for flammable liquids, four for combustible solids, five for hazardous gases, six for explosive dust, seven for electrical equipment, and eight for construction. And if you look at the documents they had at the time, and, and many of these numbers remain, but let's take that division one for fire extinguishing appliances. Uh, the first one, 1.0, let's call it, was first aid fire appliances or fire extinguishers. And that sort of morphed into NFPA 10.10. Uh, 1.1 became NFPA 11 on foam. 1.2 became NFPA 12 on carbon dioxide systems. And NFPA 13 represents 1.3 for automatic sprinkler systems. So it's interesting. The people who wonder why it's 13, it actually, you could think of it as 1.3 or 1-3 automatic sprinkler systems. And you'll still, still see remnants of this throughout the system. Uh, I, I mentioned Division 7 was electrical. That's why the National Fire Protection Association's electrical code is NFPA 70. It's 7-0 or 7.0. and the fire alarm code is 7-2, NFPA 72. So there are a great many documents still in the NFPA system that carry that remnant uh, from the organizational system set up by the National Board of Fire Underwriters. And that sort of can put everyone's mind at ease in terms of uh, if, if 13 is unlucky. Uh, <laughs> people would say, well, why? we have such an unlucky number, a number that's associated with but it's, you can think of it as a lucky number for saving lives and property. And if you don't want to think of it as 13, you could think of it as 1.0 or 1.3 or 1-3 instead. Wow. Well, that's the basic so, story. Amazing. I Again, I had heard a little bit about the chapters and numbering, but not to that detail like you had just went through. Absolutely interesting, fascinating. So I got to ask then. And I'm, I'm on the Standards Council, and I see some of the numbers that come out for newer documents. Is this system still in effect, this numbering system that you're speaking of? If it had been, Roger, you'd be seeing it. Uh, no, they've, uh, they've gone away from that. Uh, I don't know when exactly they went away from it. Uh, in some areas, they, uh, they tried to stick with it a little bit. For example, uh, there was an NFPA 72 series of documents, uh, standards for a while, as you know. Uh, we've done the same thing in the automatic sprinkler side of things. We have uh, NFPA 13D for dwelling sprinklers and NFPA 13R for residential systems in low-rise residential. Uh, and, and to some extent, when new standards come along, sometimes they try to make them fit in. For example, when NFPA 25 uh, was created in uh, 1992, uh, they, they tucked it in there right after the other uh, 20s, you know, pumps 20, uh, tanks 22, uh, underground fire protection 24, and they put 25 in that same area of standards. For the, but they don't necessarily do that today. The, the new uh, standalone earthquake protection document for water-based systems will be carrying a number NFPA uh, 200. 
They abandoned the system as far back as NFPA 101 for the life safety code. Uh, and sometimes they try to make interesting parallels. When they, when they did a parallel document to NFPA 101 intended for merchant vessels, uh, they called it NFPA 301. Uh, and it's, they've even gone back to fill in some of the lower numbers recently. Uh, and, and within the last few years, or decades at least, you have NFPA 3 on commissioning of systems and NFPA 4 on uh, integrated testing of systems. So uh, it, it's sort of whatever catches, catches their attention and sounds like a, a good number for the application, that's what uh, comes out. And I don't know what the process is. Uh, I think the NFPA accepts uh, recommendations, and maybe it's turned over to the marketing people. Uh, but uh, it's, as long as they don't change numbers in midstream, I think everybody's happy with the system. Yeah. You know, and, and I see new documents that are being proposed all the time on the Standards Council, and uh, you see them all over the place, whether they're in the 1200s, the 700s, uh, and down, like you said, with NFPA 3 and 4. So uh, th th that's really interesting. And um, well, we got a few minutes left, Russ. Are there any other aspects of the history of fire sprinklers that you think might be interesting to our listeners? Well, one of the things I like to point out uh, sometimes is that even though we give credit to Henry Parmley for the invention of the sprinkler, not everybody does. Uh, in particular, the British uh, get a little upset sometimes because there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Major Stuart Harrison. Uh, he was with the first London Volunteers. And uh, a full 10 years before Henry Parmley patented his sprinkler, he had patented an automatic sprinkler over there in, uh, in England which in many ways was superior to uh, Parmalee's sprinkler. In fact, uh, one of the innovations he introduced, which uh, was later also reinvented by uh, Frederick Grinnell, uh, Frederick Grinnell made an improvement to Parmalee's sprinkler in which he separated the solder joint that was holding the cap on the sprinkler. He separated that from the waterway, from the piping that held the water. And what that allows is a much more sensitive, thermally sensitive sprinkler. Because if you've got the solder of the sprinkler adjacent to a water-filled pipe, well, anyone who's uh, done any soldering will, will recognize the problem is that, you know, the, the water in the pipe acts as a heat sink. It's very hard to get that solder up to its melting temperature. And so uh, William Henry, or I should say, uh, uh, Harris, Stuart Harrison, had invented a great sprinkler, uh, but it was patented and never really used. And so that's why Parmalee gets the credit for the first practical automatic sprinkler. And the practicality, to a great extent, was added by Frederick Grinnell. The other thing I like to, uh, I, I find interesting is that the sprinkler industry has a little bit of a link to Sir Isaac Newton, uh, the great British uh, mathematician and physicist, who's uh, said to had had an IQ of somewhere between 180 and 200. And one of his inventions, <laughs> not one of his major inventions like the laws of motion or calculus, but one of his other uh, inventions was a eutectic solder. Uh, he found and a eutectic solder is, is an alloy that has a very sharply defined melting point uh, below the, that of its uh, constituent metals. And that's, that was important for sprinklers because you want them, as they absorb heat, to have a solder that, once it gets to its uh, temperature rating, 
it will quickly uh, release and that, therefore you don't have some water coming out and cold soldering the sprinkler whereby it won't fully open. So Isaac Newton and his invention of a, of a eutectic solder uh, is really the basis of what became the 212 degree Fahrenheit sprinkler. Uh, it was a combination of bismuth, lead, and tin, which had a sharp melting point of 212 degrees Fahrenheit and has been used over the years, over the century now and more, uh, as the intermediate temperature rated sprinkler. The actual first sprinklers uh, to hit the marketplace didn't use the 212 rating, but they used a 160, 65, 155 to 165 degree uh, solder called Woods Metal. And Woods Metal is, uh, was actually discovered in 1860, around the time of the Civil War, by a dentist in Nashville. And uh, he just threw a little cadmium into the mix, slightly different combination of those other metals. But uh, that gave us our uh, 155 degree, uh, 165 degree sprinkler, which is, uh, had, had be, has become the standard and more widely used than any other temperature rating of sprinkler. It's sufficiently below the point where wood can uh, start combusting that uh, it satisfied everyone's uh, requirements for a, a good temperature rating. And, uh, you know, when you, now, of course, we use glass bulb sprinklers more than solder-type sprinklers. But the history of solder-type sprinklers and their temperature ratings was brought over into the field of glass bulbs. And you could make a glass bulb sprinkler any temperature you wanted. Uh, they simply started doing the same thing that the solder type sprinklers would do. So th those guys, uh, Isaac Newton, Barnabas Wood, uh, made great contributions to the fire sprinkler industry, and uh, you know it continues wow. today. The 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 whole uh, eutectic solder, two hundred and twelve degree. I'm an old electronics guy. I never heard of that type of solder. And now you know where the 212 degree comes from for, uh, for the older sprinkler heads <laughs> like that. Amazing. <laughs> right. And, and, All rest. and one of the things I should mention, Roger, is that so one of the things I, I might want to throw in there is that if you look at the constituent metals, uh, you know, they're, they all have uh, melting points between, you know, 450 and 620 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's the, it's the specific combination that brings those melting temperatures down to where they're practical for use. Absolutely amazing. Russ, this has been fascinating discussion. And just listening to you, I could just go on and on. But uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. But thank you for taking your time today and, your, and sharing your knowledge and your, your history and your information. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your willingness to share uh, with my audience. I enjoyed it, Roger. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Industry Roundtable. Be on the lookout for more podcasts in the coming weeks covering a range of fire and life safety related topics. Before we wrap up, I wanted to mention that this podcast is for informational purposes and is not professional advice. We recommend you consult with your local authorities or seek professional counsel for your life safety needs.